You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our first reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 12. In this Advent time, we continue a short series about some long-awaited messiahs from the Old Testament This morning, our attention will be on the expectation and anticipation of a king. The first king over the people of Israel, the king Saul, and the people's request for a king. In connection with that, our text from 1 Samuel 8 will read 1 Samuel 12, the verses 1 through 25. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. That king being Saul. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord your God, so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hatsor, and into the hand of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. And he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side, so that you live securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you have asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now then, stand still and see the great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. And Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord 
but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject His people, because the Lord was pleased to make you His own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Let's turn also to Revelation chapter 3, to the short letter of our Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Laodicea. This will be familiar to you. It was preached here not long ago, but it is worth looking at again this morning in connection with our text. Revelation 3 at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and put salve on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 2. Let's read that together. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you, It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king will do who will reign over you. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and will give them to his attendants. 
He will take a tenth of your grain and will put your end of your vintage and will give it to his officials in attendance. Your men servant and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will then take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When the day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the, all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his town. Now there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia, of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can understand the frustration and the resulting insecurity and impatience that's expressed by the elders of Israel in this text. They had lived through the time of the judges. They knew all too well what that time had brought for them and for their people. They knew that judge after judge had come to lead God's people against a foreign tyrant. They had ruled over God's people. They had achieved some measure of of temporal, material relief. But that had only given away to God's people falling into apostasy again, into lawlessness, spiritual darkness, and then a resulting foreign oppression under which they had to live for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And so they were frustrated with this cycle. Samuel had been the judge of Israel, and he had been a good judge. In fact, he had been the greatest judge that Israel had known. Other judges had ruled over a certain area. If you look carefully at the book of Judges, you can see that that they're not... They're not ruling over the entire nation of Israel at any one time. But Samuel had done that. He had ruled from the center over all the tribes of Israel. He had brought unity to God's people. He was the greatest judge that God's people had known up to that point. However, when Samuel appointed his sons as judges, as we see at the beginning of our text, the writing, so to speak, was on the wall. These were sons that did not serve the Lord faithfully like Samuel did. They went after dishonest gain, and the elders could see that this was going to lead to trouble again. And so the elders of Israel may in some way be excused for not wanting to say, well, here we go again, and watch as Israel enters another dark period of their history. And so it was, in our text this morning, that they asked for a king. They asked for a king. They thought they were being long-suffering. We've waited long enough. We've gone through enough as a people. They had waited a long time for the, the order, the security, the prosperity, and the unity that a king could provide for them. They saw the success of the nations around them, And they wanted a taste of that for themselves, for the good of their own people. 
The problem, however, with the request of the elders was not that they were asking for a king. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that they were rejecting their king. The problem hadn't been that they didn't have a king in the past. That wasn't their problem at all. The problem was that they had ignored their king. They hadn't listened to him. They hadn't served him. They didn't recognize his grace and his goodness to them. The problem for the people of Israel was that they had rejected God as their king. And now they try to solve it by asking for a replacement. And that's our theme this morning that we'll look at this passage. God's people reject their king and they ask for a replacement. And we'll see the reason for that and we'll see what happens as a result of asking for and receiving a replacement king. And finally, we'll see the response that God calls us to when we find ourselves in this situation. So an insecure and impatient Israel rejects their king and asks asks for a replacement. Now, if you look in the NIV, if you have that in front of you, you can see the heading there is that Israel asks for a king. That's what the editors have chosen for a heading. But that's not really what's going on here, is it? Really what is going on is that the people of Israel are, in fact, rejecting their king. God's kingship over his people Israel was an established fact. He had called them to be his own. He had established a covenant between them. And it was a covenant between a king and his his servants. That was the whole structure of the covenant. It was one that God had made of his own. And it was a covenant between a king and his people. God had established his kingship over the nation of Israel in the covenant. His kingship was an established fact. He told them that they would be a kingdom for him, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Samuel says as much in this text. It's, it's confirmed. At first, Samuel feels rejected because, because the people are rejecting him as judge. But then come those striking words in verse 7 of our text when the Lord says, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected as their king. They have rejected me as their king. The Lord had called the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He had given them a, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He had given them everything that they could have wanted. He was a good king. And yet they rejected him. Why would they do this? Why would they reject God as their king? Well, the reasons are given here in our text. The first one is that they want to be like the other nations. They say that in verse 5 of chapter 8 and in verse 20. In verse 5, they say to Samuel, You are old and your sons don't walk in your ways, so appoint a king over us such as all the other nations have. We want to be like the other nations, they say. And right there is a critique of their true king. God had called His people Israel out of Egypt and He had called them to be different than all the other nations. They were to live by faith in Him. They were to be His own treasured possession, His own special people. They were to be different. But now they say, we want to be the same. 
We want to be just like all the other nations. They wanted a king that just like the other nations could, could rally them together, a king that could lead them in battle, a king that could unify them around themselves and make Israel a success, prosperous and secure. That was the reason why they wanted a king. They wanted security. They were threatened by nations all around them. They hadn't conquered the land of Israel completely as they should have, as they were supposed to. They wanted security. They lived in insecurity. In chapter 13, verse 12, our reading together, Samuel reveals that it was Nahash the Ammonite that was threatening them. And for that reason, they wanted a king. They were afraid that they were going to lose their land and their livelihood And in the same way that the kings of the other nations would call an army together and and would go out and fight their battles, maintain the autonomy of the people, so the Israelites wanted a ruler like that to secure themselves and to give them something to rally around as they would fight against the other nations around them. Sure, God was their king, but God wasn't a king like the other nations. You couldn't see him. He couldn't lead you into battle. He wasn't a picture of power and strength like the kings of the other nations. He wasn't like the Israelites. You seem too far away. Too unable to help. People wanted a king from among them who would lead and guide them. And so their desire for a king was ultimately a rejection of God. In Samuel 8, verse 7, as we, as we read, the Lord says, it's not you have they, that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Having God as your king requires faith. It requires you to trust in what is unseen. Faith hopes in what is not immediately obvious or materially present. God is a king who requires faith from his servants. The Lord had been the people's king, but he was not a king like the other nations. He was a much more powerful king. His rule extended over all creation. And yet he is also a much more subtle king. He's not obviously present like the kings of the other nations. And his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom built on love and on promises and on relational obedience. He says, through those things, through love and promises and relational obedience, there you will find success. His kingdom wasn't built on fear and demands and tyrannical rule like the kings of the nations. And his people did not want to have faith in him. They wanted a king of their own. So they asked for a replacement. They rejected God and they displayed the unbelief that was living in their hearts. That's why they rejected their king. The result of this reversal of rulers for God's people wasn't going to be pretty. And God told Samuel to tell the people as much. And Samuel gives the people the straight goods. Listen, if this is what you want... This is the way it's going to be. And as he gives them the straight goods here, he organizes it under two principles. One, the king is going to take the best of what you have. And two, you are going to serve him. 
That's the reality of having a replacement king. In verse 11, Samuel says that your king is going to take your sons and make them serve in his chariots and horses. He's going to enlist them in his imperialistic and expansionistic motives and desires, his purposes. And he's going to take your sons to do that. Your sons are going to die in battle for the king. Verse 12, he says he's going to take your sons and he's going to put them to work in his industry. It's going to be for him. Maybe you're going to achieve some success as a nation, but it's going to be at the cost of your own children. He's going to take your sons in verse 12. In verse 13, he's going to take your daughters out of their homes, out of their families, put them to work for him. Verse 14, the king is going to confiscate the best of what you have, the best of your land, the best of your agriculture, the best of your produce. You realize that the land that people had, they owed to the Lord. The Lord had taken them straight out of Egypt and had delivered them miraculously from the Canaanites in Israel. The Lord had given them this land. And Samuel says, if you have a replacement king, he's going to take it from you. Verses 15 through 17, he's going to demand a tenth of everything that you have. An equal portion of what the Lord Himself gets. But except He hasn't given anything in the first place. He's going to take, it says, the very best of what you have. And then to top it all off, in verse 17b, it says that He's going to take your life. He's going to take your freedom. You yourselves will become His slaves. They had been slaves in Egypt. God had redeemed them from that. A replacement king would make them slaves again. Now Samuel was a judge. He was also a prophet. And these words are highly prophetic. This is what happened to Israel under the kings. Saul came and enlisted their sons to fight against him. He took what was theirs. David came, though a king after God's own heart. And he had an... uh, a huge military machine. Their sons died in battle fighting for David the king as he expanded his empire. The great king Solomon himself, perhaps in some ways the greatest king Israel had ever known, was a king under whom life was difficult. When Solomon's son became king, they said, can you please lighten our yoke because life under Solomon has been so difficult. Yes, Solomon was rich. He got there off the backs of the Israelites. And after Solomon, it would only get worse in an endless succession of unfaithful kings. What the Lord through Samuel is showing to His people is simply what happens when you replace the Lord your God as king with a different king. That's simply what happens. What happens when you reject God and receive a replacement king? He takes the very best of what you have and you serve Him. You become His slave. Now what a terrible request the people of Israel have made. What a terrible trade-off this is. As Samuel says this, you think they would be cut to the heart and they would say, what were we thinking? How could we have thought such a thing? Who could ask For such a replacement, it it boggles the mind. 
And yet it's precisely what Israel did even after Samuel said this to them. They say, no, no, we understand. We want a king. Who would go for this kind of trade? Well, anyone who doesn't want to live by faith in God. Anyone who wants to live by sight. Anyone who's unsatisfied or impatient or insecure with God as their king is going to search for a different king. Brothers and sisters, many years ago, our king came to this world, became our own flesh and blood, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. We cannot see him. He is bodily far from us. Even though he rules over us by his spirit, he is our king. He is enthroned on high. And we await his return. And yet in the time before his coming, brothers and sisters, we need to live by faith. We need to renew our commitment to the king. We need to ask ourselves, is he our king? Are we putting the Lord first in our lives? A clear illustration from our own times of a king who who desires our lives is not some military warlord who's going to lead us into battle. But still, we easily search for security close by in what we can see and and touch and, and own. A powerful imposter to the king, King Jesus in our day, is a king that the Lord himself had warned us about when he walked this earth. When he said to us, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and money. It's especially at this time of year that we see the God money before us. And there is a temptation to put our trust in it. There's a madness that goes on in this world around us at this time of Christmas the time in which we celebrate the birth of our King, no less. We cannot ignore that in so many ways, another Savior is worshipped today. A Savior who is mammon, or money, or greed, or consumerism. He has many names. This cult of consumerism is on display. If you look for it, it's all around you. It was on display during the Black Friday shopping sprees as people pepper sprayed each other trampled each other, all in pursuit of offering their wallets on the altar of good deals. And the funny thing is, the world found this to be good news. As people who are, who are covered in debt, who don't have money, whose houses are being foreclosed, are rushing after more goods, the world declares this is good news. The financial markets went up after people spent more money on Black Friday than they had before. The the voracious American or North American consumer is back. Rejoice. The evidence of greed and consumerism is all around us. That's just one example. And many of us would probably outright reject the sort of... out. Uh, outright greed and consumerism that we see, and yet we need to ask ourselves, don't we participate in it? It's so easy for it to become our king. It's easy to decry its vices piously, but it's also easy to enjoy 
find security in its pleasures. Where does our sense of security come in these days in which we live? Is it not in the fact that we have stable financial markets? Is it not in the fact that we have a, a good bank account, we have access to credit, we have real estate, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, a retirement nest egg, a good income? Is that where our security is found? It's where it's found in the nations. Now, let's not misunderstand. The Lord calls us to be good stewards. He certainly does that. But the problem is that so often, after learning to be good stewards of our money, we put that stewardship to work for ourselves rather than for God, for our own luxuries, conveniences, and comforts, and not for the kingdom of God. The problem for many of us isn't that we're living so far beyond our means that we cannot maintain it. The problem for many of us is that our means are extremely high. And the life we live, as a result, becomes materialistic, present-focused, and kingdom-deficient. This is the time of the year when, as an annual occurrence, there's a notice in the liturgy sheet saying, once again, the church is behind in its receipts. We're asking you to give money for the work of the ministry of the gospel, for the maintenance of our church. We need to ask ourselves, why has this become a perennial issue for us? Why does this, this cry for help come every single year? Is it because we don't have enough? Is it because the Lord has not blessed us with enough? Or is it because there's another king who has crept in and who has taken our best? Another king who has come and whom we serve in areas of our life. Have we nothing left because we've given so much to the Lord? Or do we have nothing left because we've given so much over to our luxuries, our creature comforts, our consumeristic habits, our bloated savings accounts? in the hope that we would be protected in some way from the storms of life. Brothers and sisters, the question that we need to ask ourselves at all times as we seek to serve our Lord Jesus Christ is this. Who is getting our best? Who is getting our best? Israel desired another king. A king that was going to take the best of what God had given them. Show me who takes the best of what God has given to you. And I will show you your king. The true king gives abundantly as we experience. He supplies us with all that we need. He even became poor for our sake that we might become rich. Replacement kings take the best of what we have and give us nothing in return except empty and short-lived sense of security that actually leads to increased anxiety, discontentment, entitlement, and a desire for more. Samuel told the people as much when they asked for a replacement king. But brothers and sisters, the goal as we live in Advent, is not to feel overwhelmed or disappointed by ourselves, 
The goal ever at all times for God's people is not to, to look out and say, this is terrible. Why are people doing this? It's a call to look at ourselves, to understand what God has done in, in calling us to be his own, to realize that, that Jesus is our king and to renew our hope and our faith in him. When we are, when we are living burdened lives under the God of greed and consumerism and materialism, or whether political king, or whatever it is that is ruling your life. The call at all times is to go to the one who said to his people, living under a burden, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We serve a king who is a good king. And he calls us to himself over and over And over again. In Revelation, this king, King Jesus, wrote a letter to the church at Laodicea. This was a church that said, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Does that sound familiar? They judged themselves by the standards of the kingdom of greed. And they found themselves to be good, decent citizens. But according to the true king and his standards, they were wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And what did King Jesus say? He said, if you continue like this, I will spit you out. But repent. Repent. Come back to me. Return from your waywardness and return to me and I will give you rest. And I will continue to supply you with all that you need as I have done from the very day that you were born. And so it is that the response, the same response is called for in our text this morning. The initial response of the people was rejection. They hardened themselves in their sin. But the response that was called for, both as they heard the words of Samuel and also as we recognize in our hearts, waywardness is repentance. 1 Samuel 12 verse 19, the people woke up to the reality of their request and they said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to our sins the sin of asking for another king. And this is the abiding significance for us, brothers and sisters, in this time of Advent. What is the response for us today? How will we respond when we find that another king has taken hold of our hearts? Response that is called for is to repent and believe in the king over our hearts. To repent. There is a part of us, as the Apostle Paul teaches us, and he calls our sinful nature, which desires a king that is not Jesus Christ. And the key is to recognize that tendency and to put it off. Whether that is money, or political power, or fame, or whatever it is that wants to take the best of what you have, recognize that there is the tendency in your own heart to have that. And put it off. And ask God to forgive you when it happens to you. Because it is going to happen to you. It does happen to you. It happens to me. It happens to all of us who struggle against our sinful nature. God calls us to repent. And He also calls us to faith. Because there is one King who deserves the best of what we have. He's given us everything we have. He's the very same one 
who has given us everything we have. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is King Jesus. In Him is found eternal security. You want security? Go to Him. Eternal security is found with Him. Spiritual prosperity that you can't even imagine. And heavenly success. He's the one who gives us not what our sinful desires crave, but what our lives need. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us renewal. He promises us glory in His Father's presence. And He renews our desires. He renews our desires after Him. He makes us able to reject those imposters and calls us and makes us able to put our trust in Him more and more and more as His Spirit works in us. We need no king but King Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, we are in so much of a better place than the people of Israel who called out for a king. Their king, their hearts longed for a king. A king from among them. A king to save them. A king to help them. But their expectation was that this king would look like the other ones that their eyes could see. But God has given to us a king. A king from among us. A king who is our own flesh and blood. A king to save us and help us. But this king didn't look like other kings. He was a king who was born in humility. In a manger. He was a king that was born at a time when another king was powerful. Caesar, Augustus. But this king was born in humility. He was familiar with suffering. He died in rejection. But he was the Lord's anointed. And He is still the Lord's anointed. Other kings take what doesn't belong to them so that they can rule over those whom they have no right to rule over. But King Jesus gave up everything that was rightfully ours, so it's His, so that He could become like us. And so that He could rule over us. And save us. Having secured our redemption through His death and resurrection, He ascended to His heavenly throne where He sits and where we worship Him now. And this this King calls us to be devoted to Him in everything because He has already given us everything. And so let us live our lives for Him. Let us be devoted to Him. Let us live daily in repentance and faith. As the Apostle Paul said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. He teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and holy lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, King Jesus. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.